0: An Altar on the Village Green From Book One of The Chained God Written by Nathan Hall Narration, Music, and Sound Design by Alex Schiffer Episode 5, Anchored. This tower can't be real. Tofia tried to avoid the thought, but it ran through her mind like the screeching tune of a self-taught violist. The thought scraped against it, leaving it raw and bleeding, and thinner somehow than it had been. Her training drew her on. Be observant, be clever, be decisive, be safe. Above all, be safe. Her deaths had granted the words richer meaning than they had held in all the years of her learning. The pressed bruise sensation guided her toward horror, toward madness, toward death, pulled her until she was almost running. Rounding a familiar corner she pulled up short of an ankle-high tripwire. She traced the trap with her eyes. The wire ran into the wall, up to the ceiling, and connected to rusted gears and arms, which held an off-colored beam in place. Tafia followed the arc those arms suggested, and found a wall cracked and bloody from a previous impact. Blood had dripped a line along its arc, and puddled beneath the spot the ram had reset into. The trap made no sense. A feat of engineering left to rust, yet still functional. Who had built it, and who had been the target? In the second of her stillness, she heard them not far ahead. Quiet. Hand-muffled. Laughter. Laughter like a child playing a prank on an adult. Close enough to hear if the trap was sprung. Close enough to hear all but the most clever deception. Tafia took a slow breath and pulled the wire. She barely dropped to the floor in time. With a single low clack, the ram loosed, the rusted metal arms screeching as they led it through its heavy arc splitting the air just over her head. The rams slammed into the wall with a clap like thunder. The laughter rose to cackles, echoing around a bend just ahead. They waded out of sight as the ponderous pendulum swung back up and into place, latching with a scrape. Then the footsteps and the laughter came closer. Tafia watched the tripwire, a slack serpentine on the floor, urging it to reset. Movement drew her eyes back up. Three figures, short but thin enough to seem lanky, clambered around the corner. Two large eyes peered out from sunken faces. Hair, knotted and dirty, tumbled down where it hadn't fallen out in fistfuls. Their clothes were tatters where they weren't altogether missing. One of the men wore nothing below what might have once been a tunic. These were folks suffering from famine or plague or both. They were hours away from death. They giggled madly, shoving at each other and pointing at the ram as dust drifted from its settling place. One mimed the swing of the thing with a clap for the impact. They were so busy laughing that it took them a moment to see Tafia. The laughter stopped. The man in front spun and tried to push past the one in back who was still standing on tiptoe to see. The woman, to the side, stood with her mouth agape. Tafia could almost hear the thoughts latching together in that diseased mind. That mind slowly turning toward action. The woman stepped forward. With a rattle and a hiss, the tripwire pulled taut. Heart hammering in her chest, Tafia yanked the wire once more. The sounds of the trap swallowed the panic of the three. With a wet crack, the head of the man in the back burst against the corner of the ram, spinning him aside. The man in front took the brunt to his chest. Thrown backward, he landed on his head. Tafia heard the snap of his neck breaking. As his legs swung over him and he flopped bonelessly to a rest in front of her, the ram struck the wall and then started its slow rest. Carefully avoiding the path of the ram, Tafia pushed herself to her feet. The squeal of metal arms, the twitching of the man with the caved-in chest, were both drowned in the silence of the survivor. The woman's eyes were wide, her mouth still agape. She'd pressed hard against the wall, out of the path of the ram. But now she sagged. Her head swiveled to look at the trap, to look at the brains against the wall, to look at the body still in death throes by the wire, to look at Tafia. She laughed, a rich, deep, unashamed sound as though Tafia had told a clever joke. Hand on her stomach, the woman threw her head back and howled. She heaved and gasped and cried. She sank to her knees, the blood of her friends slick beneath her, and laughed. Tafia drew her sword as she approached. I'll admit, it is funny. The woman died laughing. The way ahead was slow but steady. Tafia had learned the path with the fewest people, the path that would weigh on her the least with each repetition. But solitude was another weight in this place of madness, and long thought held its own horrors. She had long ago memorized this route. Left, straight, straight, right, straight, left, straight, past other paths, other doors, Past desecrated corpses. Past pressure plates with poison darts. Past a puzzle that shot fire if failed. Past a lever that opened both a door and a pit beneath itself. None of it held much danger anymore. Not directly, in any case. None of it made sense. None would build a tower such as this filled with traps that would kill owner and intruder with equal measure. Tafia tried not to think about it. Tried not to speculate on how and why. How could walls spew fire? Perhaps it was an oil, pushed through the cracks between stones using air and sparked by flint and steel just before the surface. How could poison darts retain their potency for the untold decades or centuries this tower seemed to have existed Perhaps conditions of dark and moisture maintained a toxic mold where the darts were housed. There must have been a release somewhere to keep the floor secure while the door was opened. Tafia had simply not found it yet. That was the true danger of this place. If she thought about it too long, it started to make sense. Tafia rounded a corner and stared. Most of the long hall was framed by a balcony along one side. Looking out over a vast, rolling forest. Only now did she feel the breeze on her skin. Cool and sweet. Welcoming. She'd seen this view a dozen times before. This single island of beauty and peace. She'd never seen it here. Tafia knew what was here. This was the room whose ceiling dropped spears. And beyond that was the room that flooded and the room beyond that. Had she taken a wrong turn somewhere? Was that possible? She put a hand to her forehead. No, she hadn't taken a wrong turn, because she remembered finding this room before, always unexpectedly, and because the view from the balcony wasn't right. It was always the same, no matter where she found it and it was never right. From the balcony, the land below fell for dozens of stories before the tips of trees obscured sight of the ground. Much too far to consider jumping, or even to find materials and climb down on a makeshift rope, it hinted at freedom and peace, but it was only another torture, another trap. The forest rolled along in hills of green but the city and the coasts that should have been here were nowhere to be seen. Perhaps that hateful part of her mind reasoned. She simply hadn't reached a balcony that was facing the water. Perhaps another view awaited her, of endless seas glittering beneath the sun. She found herself taking a step out onto the balcony. The smell of pines wafted up to her, A sharp contrast to the death that had filled her nostrils for untold time. How long had it been between each balcony? Days? Weeks? Had a month passed between each view of the outside world? Was it not possible that she was mistaken? Every balcony was at a different height, and she didn't remember enough to notice the difference. Even where she stood you could see other balconies high above and just below. Perhaps there was a purpose for this tower. Perhaps it housed the criminals and the insane, torments and traps around every corner, but mainly reliant on the cruelty or callousness of others inside. Even these balconies, then, made sense. Created to give the hope of escape, and perhaps to give the evil a chance to push the less wary to their death, Tafia stepped even further out onto the balcony, yearning to hear the seabirds cry and the sails snap in the wind, but even as she watched the trees dance in the same breeze that brought their green scent, she couldn't hear their whispers. This tower hadn't been built by anyone. She remembered arriving here, remembered it springing up around her between one step and the next remembered plunging deeper into the labyrinth each time she died. But wasn't that more insane? Didn't it make more sense that this place had been built by people and for a purpose? That it belonged here? That it was as old as it seemed? Didn't it make more sense that she was here because she was mad? That she belonged? The thought of accepting her place in the tower had the tug of a swift-flowing current. She remembered dying, again and again and again. But death was final, was forever. She remembered visions of others' lives. Remembered shared feelings and experiences. Remembered suffering a hundred different worlds of madness. She remembered killing. Didn't it make sense that the world wasn't insane? That she was the one who was insane? How many had she killed in this place? How many like those she deceived with the tripwire had she enjoyed killing? The world wouldn't have been safe with her on the outside. She had likely killed people out there, as well earning her place in this tower. No. She was not insane. She did not belong here, no one did, because this place didn't belong. With raking fingers she held tight to her training. She was a lance, sent in the name of her god to lands consumed by horror, to save the people who had fallen prey. She was a being apart from the madness, not a party to it and she knew with everything in her that she stood many floors below ground. Holding on was like swimming upstream, but she did it long enough to cling to shore. She sagged against the railing, panting as though she'd been running. Be observant, she panted, gripping the banisters with trembling hands. Be clever. Be decisive. Be... Behind her, She heard a creaking sort of chuckle. Fear crawled across her skin as she turned to face the sound. With an impact, that stole her breath. She hit the banister hard and swung over. Her fingers clawed at the stone, but found no purchase. Above all, be safe. The wind whistling past her carried the sound of her laughter. I was Tophia, cackling to her death. Returning to myself was like rushing to the surface through a sea of my god's ichor, rising through a sea of honey and blood and ash. I broke to the world above, gasping, and realized that I was laughing just as Tophia had been. It took all my will to make myself stop. Pulling my true self into focus brought with it a dizziness like looking down from a height. It took another moment to steady myself and sit. Where was here? My breath brought with it the smell of smoke and blood. My eyes opened and the anchor stood before me. And the plateau. And in the distance beyond, the village. A scream split the air coming from a house close by, a nuisance the high canter had called death, a nuisance like the itch of a bug's bite. My death and the vision that had followed had speared into my mind, every bit as barbed as the anchor. I remembered the horror of being unable to find air, and the even more horrible moment of believing I was mad. I had to strain against that tearing pressure to reach myself, here, now. With my first death, I understood how a lance could fall into the madness of a land. My hands shook as I pushed myself to my feet. Be observant, I murmured, be clever, be decisive, be safe, above all be safe. I wanted to sit by the anchor to reason out why I had died and how I could avoid it. I wanted to meditate on the vision I'd been given, to find some meaning or lesson within it. I wanted to sit at the anchor, safe from the screaming and the killing down in the village, safe from a pitchfork and my own sword. That desire was what pushed me into action. If I sat and dwelled on this death, I wouldn't find the courage to try again. I took the sword in hand, partly to make certain I had reclaimed it in rebirth, and started down the stone steps on shaky legs. My stride was quicker than it had been before. My foot found a stone it hadn't during the last attempt, almost turning my ankle. Despite my disorientation, I reached the house earlier than in the previous cycle crouching against the wall before I had heard the footsteps. In the quiet, the boy's cry tore at my heart. Only my God knew what was happening to the innocents of this village, and the best I could do for them at this moment was nothing. The pain in his cries, in my helplessness to save him, was a hammer with which I had forged my resolve. Footsteps The three I waited for. The three who had killed me. They were the source of the terror. The chains keeping every villager shackled. I was sure of it. Three deaths and the boy would be free. Three deaths and I could go home. I waited through their discussion. Izelak screamed at the man that must have impaled me on his pitchfork. After that... The woman asked. After you've ripped the rest of the town apart, assuming we're still alive, what then? The fort, Izalak said, as though he'd expected the question. Farther into town, the boys' scream went on and on, unending. Torchlight fell on me, and then drained away as they passed. The soldiers abandoned us, Farah. They're just as guilty as anyone here. I took a shaky breath, like I might before diving into a lake, and stepped out of my hiding place. Creeping closer felt like falling, closer, almost within reach. Swinging my sword felt like crashing into the cold waters. You think this thing is really going to- Farah's words cut off. Her head lolled against one shoulder, severed almost completely. A shock raced through me, a chill crawling along my skin. She'd have done the same to me, but she was a person, had been a person. My last life had taught me not to hesitate. Even as she fell, even as guilt turned to nausea in my stomach, I left for the man with the pitchfork. He managed to turn and brought the haft of the tool up between us. But my blade cleaved through to carve down his face. He fell away, moaning through what was left of his mouth. Something hit me hard. My vision shrank as though I looked at the world through clenched fists. I stumbled forward, and only as I turned did I feel the searing along one side of my face. My hand reached up to soothe the pain and jerked away. My eye was still good, But much of my face was scorched and sizzling. I couldn't tell if I still burned. I should have hurt more, should have been screaming from it, but everything was smothered in layers of wool, thought, emotion, pain. The only thought that came easy was that the pain was on its way. I had to end this man now. My first step turned into a stumble as a sudden dizziness threatened to topple me. Izalek had dropped the busted remains of the torch and snatched the knife from his companion's death grasp while I struggled to stay on my feet. One man with a knife against a lance with a sword was not a contest. An injured lance, whose head blistered, whose world spun, was another matter. Izalek easily dodged the wild swipe I managed with my sword, and darted to plant the knife in my stomach. My knees buckled, and all the air rushed from my lungs. The wound meant an agonizing death, a death of hours. And with death, another vision, another struggle to return to myself. Will tried to drain as strength fled. I held onto it with the same grip that I kept on the sword. Izelak abandoned the knife, trying to dodge back beyond my reach. He didn't quite make it. The sword's tip ripped a larger hole in his stomach than the one the knife was still tearing in mine. He fell back off the blade, and was slower to rise than I. By the time he'd risen to his knees, I would stumbled forward, using that momentum to drive the blade into his chest. As I watched the light fade from his eyes, the hair rose all along my arms, pinpricks raced along my spine, and my scalp prickled like a limb coming awake. Darkness seemed to swell in the small circle of the fight, darkness deeper, and with more substance than the surrounding twilight. Leaving the sword lodged in the dead madman, I ripped the knife from my stomach with a low cry. My hand clutched the oozing wound. A slow death and another vision. Another risk of madness. The flask. The blow to the head and the agony of the wound had clouded my thoughts. With trembling hands, I fished the flask from where it hung around my neck. My clumsy fingers barely pulled the cap off. I downed it like a man dying of thirst. My next cry wasn't low at all. It might have rivaled the scream across the village. Dying had been quick, its pain chased by a deep, dark stillness, almost like comfort. The pain of healing was worse. For a single heartbeat, I wished I'd let the man kill me. Then I rose, finger playing in the hole the knife had left on my clothing. Curious, I raised a hand to my head, I found unbroken skin and the stubble of new hair. The village was eerily silent. I listened for a breath. Had I done it? Aside from some goose flesh, I didn't feel any different. Another wail broke from the quiet from a new portion of the village, and the cries from the house nearby joined him. Sighing, I pulled my sword from the corpse. Strangely, The blood didn't stick to the blade, but instead, like the anchors, slid off in drops. There must have been other murders, other sources of this horror. They would have heard the fighting, might be on their way now. As I turned to leave, a soft groan made me look to one of the bodies. The pitchfork-wielding man gave a rasping breath. Through the mess my blade had made of his face. I could see bone. I could see brain. His eyes were open, aware. I considered leaving him. Who might he have killed? Had they really killed children? But this was a place of madness. How responsible were they for their actions? They may have been driven, minds twisted by whatever force bound them here. Frowning in distaste, I gave him an easy death. Cold washed over me. My fingers and toes prickled. The feeling passed quickly. Something I'd never felt, but I'd heard so much about that it nonetheless seemed familiar. I could almost hear Cantor Aras's lectures now. The blade allowed me to draw out their suffering. Their madness. To pull it to myself. The chained god would suffer in their stead, and the process of passing on their pain would draw me closer. What exactly did it mean to be close to my god? Staying low, I took off deeper into the village, toward the place I had last heard the boy's voice. 8. The Boy It didn't take long to reach the house with the screaming boy small but sturdy, like any other house in the village, its thatched roof thankfully not one of those set ablaze. The house was eerily silent. As I approached the front door, I glanced around to make sure that none would follow. Something sat against the door, holding it closed. The house appeared normal enough to make me doubt this was the right place. Could the cry have come from elsewhere? Closing my eyes, I brought back the moments before I had attacked Izelak and the others. This had to be the source of the scream. I circled around, barely able to see the ground below me. I clutched a curse between my lips as I bruised my shin on some odd corner I couldn't identify even after I struck it. Forcing slow breaths as I rubbed the pain away, I twisted my head left and right, listening for any reaction. Just the distant sounds of screaming, the burning of distant fires. I stepped around whatever it was and continued on. A window on the side of the house was shuttered. I hesitated, and considered checking the back. But if the front was barricaded, I doubted any other windows or doors might be open what if someone was inside what if whoever had silenced the boys cry had claimed the house for their own what if they waited in the darkness even now for someone to respond to the screams forcing the window would be a loud business even if no one inside meant me harm someone patrolling the village likely did suddenly The unexplored dark around me was host to its own unknown dangers. Danger lurked, without, within. But above, like a thunderhead, loomed the death I had suffered. The knife's edge struggled to return to myself. The threat that I wouldn't win that struggle the next time. Every moment I delayed, I taunted that cloud to rain down blood and terror. Would I rise from the anchor as myself next time? Would I be able to defeat Izalak's group again? Was I risking the village and the world for the sake of one boy? Helping him meant nothing if I failed to find the source of this horror and destroy it. In defiance of those thoughts, I pushed against the shutter. It resisted. But as I'd expected, the simple hook and lock failed long before my strength. The shutter burst open with a clatter that made me jump even as I threw my hand up to hold it still. I paused, looking around outside one last time, but listening to the inside of the house. Nothing. Nothing outside. Somehow even less from within. Sheathing my sword and hoping I wouldn't need it, I lifted myself up and onto the windowsill, and dropped with little noise into the room beyond. If the village, bathed in twilight, had been dim, darkness was unrelieved inside the house. I stood in the dark for a long moment, listening to my own unsteady breathing and thundering heart, expecting pain and death, expecting to be sent back to the anchor and another vision expecting to be forced to fight the three again. Instead, there was more of the same, more nothing. As my eyes adjusted, I noticed a distant glow. Stumbling into and over things in the dark, I traced the faint flickering to a back bedroom. Someone had ripped the door mostly off the hinges, and had since tried to shut At my touch, the door fell in a strange wobble pivot against the wall. My stomach clenched tight as I peered into the room. A candle sat neat on the table between two beds, finger loop out for convenient grasping. Its dancing flame cast a fretful light over walls sprayed with blood. Sitting against the wall was a boy, almost a man face patchy with new fuzz. His head sat at a strange angle, leaned halfway back until the wall held him. His throat had been opened viciously. I assumed murder at first glance, but his limp hand on the ground held the straight razor. His father's, or gifted to him only recently. My mind took refuge in mundane questions as though they could delay the swelling nausea, as though they could prevent the wash of further sickening detail. The boy's vacant eyes were on the bed against the far wall, and my own followed. A smaller form lay there. It was almost impossible to recognize a little girl. The body had been brutalized with a fury I couldn't comprehend. The splashes and streaks of blood wrote stories on the wall in a language I was thankful not to speak. It had pooled around the indentation of the body, soaked through blankets and mattress to puddle on hardwood below. With reluctance, I stepped further into the room, picking around the boy. I couldn't bring myself to look more closely at the child. Instead, I took up the candle which seemed to have avoided the blood entirely, unless whoever did this left it behind. With a certainty that had nothing to do with proof, I knew that the three I had slain were the ones who had murdered this girl. I had thought of the gore on the blades and hands of that group, and fire ate along the surface of my skin. The thought of them hurting children before had angered me, but then it had been abstract a fact. Now the children had a face. Now they had the keening of a grieving boy, and the stench of a new death. Now, by loving carvings and headboards, these children had names. Notrim, said the empty bed. And the other headboard that Izalak had turned into the little girl's gravestone, said Nell. These children demanded vengeance. More of the story revealed itself on my way out, near an overturned chair in the main room. A man lay in a pool of blood, his face turned toward the bedroom in death. His was a shape I'd stumbled over in the darkness before. A woman near the door had been butchered, Her hands mangled to uselessness before someone had put a dozen holes through her front. I looked between the man and the woman. The woman's death had taken longer, and been more brutal than the man's. She had fought them, it seemed, and the man had allowed himself to be killed, perhaps hoping that their deaths would satisfy the monsters who had done this. His last thought had been for the safety of his children. My heart throbbed in my ears, each pulse demanding I move, demanding I act. When I reached the door, I threw it open, uncaring of the sound I made, and whether other killers might be searching for victims. If there were others, I hoped they found me. Other screams welcomed me back. Other murdered parents. Other butchered children. The candle let me move more quickly, sure of the ground beneath my feet. It might give me away to potential attackers, but it might draw them to me rather than to innocent victims. The street curved around a larger building. An inn? whose roof had collapsed and now blazed wildly. Outside were mounds also alight that confirmed my earlier suspicion, bodies stacked with wood and hay to ensure they burned. With heavy footsteps, I followed the road around the curve, toward the village center. There was nothing that could be done, any more than could be done for the children. All that my blade could provide was vengeance. I had just gotten close enough to recognize the carts and boxes piled high between tall fences as a blockade, and several doors banged open all around me. I made a slow circle, tossing the candle and drawing my blade. Four, five, six ambushers. An average sword wielder could tackle two farmers with scythes and pitchforks before being overwhelmed. A good one, perhaps three or four. One of the greats might even have had a chance at killing all the ambushers and walking away alive. I was not a great warrior. I should have been scared. Indeed, blood thrummed in my ears as I watched them leave doorways. But in the beat of my heart, I could almost make out the names of slaughtered children. Notiram, Nell. Wrath roared that any of these ambushers I killed before they put me down would be worth my life, and more. I hoped that the thought didn't show on my face. Strange clothes, outsider, a woman said. She was one with a scythe by the chains you're from the church I discarded the answer that rage had drafted and considered carefully perhaps these folk weren't killers was it possible that they had banded together to protect themselves from the three had killed they hadn't attacked me immediately after all perhaps with the right words I could prevent a fight altogether But what words were the right ones? Those trapped in madness were unaware that they had been devoured. They lived each cycle of the horror as though it were the first time. This woman couldn't recognize, and possibly wouldn't accept, that I had been sent to cleanse the area. You're having some hardships, it seems. I lowered the point of my blade so that I was only holding it rather than wielding it. Some of the forms around me laughed all without mirth. Footsteps slowly closed in. Did deer feel the same cold tickle on their skin right before the arrow was loosed? Hardships. ships. The woman tasted it on her tongue. Then she pointed around, indicating the smoke from the inn bellowing over rooftops. Indicating the barricade behind me. Why are you here, Chainclinker? I asked myself the same question. A good lie was more truth than not. Sanoesir has fallen, good woman. I've been sent by the church to free it. Your town was a fine place to rest for the night but I see now that perhaps it was my god's will that I traveled this way. Perhaps I can help resolve what's happening here, before the same fate befalls the village as what the city suffers. You think to save us? The woman asked incredulous. You've come too late. The men opposite her, barely in my peripheral, were close enough for a swing of my sword to hit them. But these people did not seem mad. Not like the three I had dealt with before. Perhaps I could... The lady waved. A hand seized my throat. Even as I threw my shoulder back to dislodge the attacker, a blade sank deep into my back with a precision not born to farmers. The figure released me, I managed to thrash with my blade, clipping one man across the face before I fell. I rose to my knees, but strength bled from me to dampen the packed dirt. My struggles churned up mud before my will finally failed. Darith, You were supposed to wound. The clinker won't make it to the altar alive. Sorry. You didn't sound sorry. She huffed, and then came close, kneeling in the mud. With a frown of distaste, she drew a knife from her belt. My mouth moved, pleading for mercy, trying to explain that I was there to help. "I'm sorry," she said, almost under her breath, "but as you can see, it's almost dark. She grabbed me before the hair and tugged back my head. My throat opened, and I choked on my own blood. This has been chapters 7 and 8 of An Altar on the Village Green. From Book 1 of The Chained God. Written by Nathan Hall. Edited by Sarah Chorn. Original print cover by Luke Tarzian. And podcast cover by Van Fulfs. Copyright 2021 by Nathan Hall. All rights reserved.